Hello friends and welcome to The Membership, a podcast about the works and life of Wendell Berry, the farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, activist, and thinker. My name is Jason Hardy and today in this interview episode I'm joined in person by my usual co-host and fellow member John Pattison as well as our guest and fellow member Charlie Peacock. Charlie Peacock is a Nashville-based, four times Grammy Award-winning, multi-format jazz and pop recording artist, composer, and record producer. Peacock's production credits range from Chris Cornell and Ladysmith Black Mambazo to AAA and Americana successes such as The Lone Bellow, Holly Williams, The Civil Wars, Ben Rector, and Brett Denon. Peacock began his iconoclastic career in the 1980s as a singer-songwriter for Exit A&M, then Island Records. In addition to his unique solo efforts, Peacock has played a lead role in creating major chart hits in three separate decades, most notably Amy Grant's Every Heartbeat in 1991, Swiftfoot's Dare You to Move in 2002, The Civil War's gold debut album Barton Hollow in 2011, earning Grammys for Best Folk Album and Country Duo, and the 2013 number one Billboard pop debut, The Civil Wars, featuring the co-written single, The One That Got Away. In recent years, Peacock's solo output has included his acclaimed singer-songwriter release, No Man's Land, from 2012, and four jazz improvisa improvisational releases, including 2018's When Light Flashes, Help Is On The Way, which includes the, t the track titled Wendell Berry In The Fields At Night. As evidenced by that track, Charlie is also a fan of Wendell Berry, and we're thrilled he agreed to join us on today's episode to talk through what Wendell Berry has meant to him and his work. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Well, one of the questions that we're asking all of our guests um, is, is for them to describe their Wendell Berry origin story, so to speak. When did you first uh, encounter Wendell Berry's work? Yeah, I first encountered Wendell Berry's work when we moved uh, from California to Nashville. And uh, that was my first um, interaction with the concept of a Southern agrarian. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, of course, I, I grew up in a farm community, as I was telling you guys earlier, and uh, so agrarian communities were uh, common uh, to my growing up, uh, but I'd never heard the term Southern agrarian. And I would especially had never heard the term Southern agrarian and intellectual <laughs> in the same sentence. So uh, I became very inquisitive and wanted to find out about who these characters might be. And of course, uh, you know, the just a cursory look is going to lead you to Wendell Berry immediately. Um, I read essays first mm -hmm. um, before I read any fiction or poetry. And I still go to the essays probably most. Mm -hmm. Although, I, I guess I'd probably say that every person should read Hannah Coulter mm -hmm. every five years or so. <laughs> just to recenter yourself. Mm -hmm. And was there a particular collection that you started with? Yes, I um, did. I, I brought out a couple. Of, we own, we, um, I think, pretty much every book that Wendell Berry's put out. But um, I believe it was The Way of Ignorance, mm -hmm. oh, wow. uh, this group of essays. Um, 
that I started with. I, I was also loved the citizenship papers quite a bit, uh, particularly in the time of, when the book came out. Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community is another important collection of essays for me. What did you find yourself resonating with as you, as you first began interacting with his, with his writing? Well, I'd have to take you back um, a little bit further before uh, Andy and I moved to Nashville, if that's okay. Sure, that's yeah. Um, we got together when we were uh, 14 and 15 years old. And so we've, we've been married uh, for 43 years. Mm -hmm. And during that time, uh, in the um, early 1970s, um, there were some characters in California that were very important to that time. Our governor at the time, a young man named uh, Jerry Brown, and he gathered around him a, a bunch of counterculture characters who held positions in his cabinet and government and whatnot. And, and, um, a fellow by the name of Gary Snyder became right. um, a part of the uh, Arts and Humanities Council. And, and I knew Gary Snyder from uh, when I was 15, I started reading Jack Kerouac. And uh, of course his name was Jaffe Ryder in the Dharma Bones. But um, I, once I found out about Gary Snyder, I read everything that, um, that he wrote, and he had a Pulitzer Prize winning um, a book of poetry in 1974 or five called Turtle Island. So um, I, I tell you that story just to say that I was completely primed to encounter <laughs> Wendell Berry yes, sure. via Gary Snyder. And of course, you guys, uh, as you're studying. Wendell, you know that there's a, a book of published letters between Wendell mm -hmm. and Gary. So it was kind of like fast forward all these, all these years. It's like, well, of course they knew each other. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, when I had just graduated from high school as a junior, one of the first things I did when I went to the uh, junior college that was in our neighbor, neighborhood, and I, I was just 17 years old, but um, a social studies um, teacher in our high school knew Gary Snyder, just tangentially. And so through him, I got Gary's address uh, uh, up on uh, San Juan Hill, and uh, just, uh, you know, outside of Nevada City. And uh, I wrote to him and invited him to come and speak at Yuba College. Okay? <laughs> and he did, he brought a whole caravan of, of counterculture tribalists and um, and so that was just kind of you know I mean I, for me Gary Snyder was I love Miles Davis Miles Davis opened me up to musical experimentation like no one else but he was not necessarily a person to admire hmm. um, John Coltrane showed me that you could have the biggest album of your career that was completely explicit in its adoration of God, hmm. seeking transcendence through music. Um, Jack Kerouac told me that if you don't want to have to, you don't want to do something, then don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, 
you know, I mean, for a 15-year-old, that was a revolutionary message. Uh, dream another dream. You know, you don't need to be stuck in this sort of uh, cookie-cutter suburban life. But Gary Snyder, above all the others, he was the one who showed me that you could be a poet, you could be a man's man, uh, you could be a person of the land, you could understand agriculture, conservationism, what was then called ecology. Um, you could dream big dreams, you know, you could, you could do things in a counterculture way. Uh, you didn't have to live just like everybody lived. Um, so he was really the one that kind of gave me an ethical moral basis on which to, to begin. Uh, and out of that, and then I encountered the, the person of Jesus and, and that whole story, and I entered into that story. But all those characters before are very, very important, mm -hmm. right? And Gary Snyder is super important. So now you move to Wendell Berry, right? Well, now you get a guy who has all the things that Gary Snyder's got going on, and he has a profession of Christ is who he says he is, mm -hmm. right? So that's why Wendell is so much of a home base for me. Yeah, language of the home base, yeah. <clears throat> that's great. Um, well, I'm wondering then, you know, how has Wendell Berry's thought, um, maybe from his essays, um, how has that influenced the way that you do your work as a musician, as, uh, as, a, as a composer, as a producer? Yeah, well, um, I think the whole concept of, of uh, neighborliness and place uh, are very, very embedded into what I do. So I never do anything creatively that is um, a great distance away from my immediate experiences mm -hmm. with people. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to dream up something or imagine something that, that that might kind of come from left field, but at its heart, I'm I'm going to do it for the love of, of people. I'm going to do it for the love of place. And so, um, as I grew as a musician, and I had opportunity. And I was my work created other opportunities for me as people celebrated what it was that I was making musically, that allowed me to create a place through the art house, uh, you know, almost 30 years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, and um, because I wanted to have a place of gathering. So the whole concept of God, people, and place, mm -hmm. which is at the foundation of, of Barry's philosophy and theology, is very much about what Andy and I are about. And when we began the art house work, it was very much about that. What does it mean to be in community with people? And what does it mean to create the place where people gather? So that there's a notion of when we come here, we expect good to happen. And that's a very much, a, again, a very much a Wendell idea of like, like, 
you know, you can't say that, like he had said, you can't say that America is a good country, you know, if it's not good. Right. Uh, it, just because it does all of these things that are um, expedient or it does things that make money or so on and so forth, there's always got to be, you've always got to be asking the question, yes, but is it good? By, by forget the world standards of good, just how about you personally? Mm -hmm. Is it good for you and your family and your neighbors? Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think he, the great thing about Wendell and, and agriculture is that uh, you can extrapolate outward from, from all of that metaphorically to the, to the whole of life. And, and that's another reason why it rings my bell because again, I come from a farm community. Yeah. So when I think about record production, you know, I know how to delay gratification, hmm. right? Because that's embedded in farm people, wow. right? You plant, right? You tend, you water, you care for something, and you're hoping for good fruit, right? But nothing's going to happen overnight, right? And it may, it may require a lot of adaptivity to you. Like like where I'm from, this it's big peach farming, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, for, you know, a hundred years, pomologists have been working with peach trees, right? And changing out um, uh, rootstocks and figuring out how, how can we get the most robust rootstock, the smallest, most compact tree that needs the least amount of water to produce the maximum amount of fruit that the branches don't break, right? All of that takes time. And so for me as an artist, that's why I've never been run by the clock. Mm. Uh, I've, I've always been run by the notion of, is it good? Yeah. So what does that look like on a recording session uh, when you're working on a record? Um, what, does that, what does that look like to you when it plays itself out? Well, there's, I think you can grieve failure, but... Um, just like you would on the farm. I mean, you got to get right to problem solving. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. you can say, oh my gosh, you know, that le that levy broke or that check broke and and all our irrigation just escaped, <laughs> you know, down the side of the hill, mm -hmm. right? But then it's like, you know, you got to fix the, the check. You got to fix the levy, mm -hmm. right? And do what it takes, right? And it's the same in record production. You make a series of choices, you assess those choices, some succeed, others don't. Those that don't succeed, you, you look at them again, you try to determine is this something worth fixing for the greater good? Mm -hmm. What are this song, this production, this artist's career, etc. And um, you're just constantly weighing um, the goodness of ideas mm -hmm. and how much it relates to the people and to the place and to, in, in my case, when I'm working with fellow Christians, what it means to profess to be a follower of Jesus. So that, mm -hmm. that's an integrated, seamless uh, way of looking at all vocation. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I mean, you mentioned place, um, and that is absolutely something that is central to, uh, to Wendell Berry's thought. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for him uh, as a writer, that meant sort of taking his place as the subject that 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 he was going to write about. Yeah. Um, what does that mean for you in in music? How how can music be 
um, focused on a place. Yeah. Well, music's very interesting in terms of place. is because uh, there's no neutrality, of course, about where you're born. And um, the era that you're born, the place that you're born. For example, I was born in Northern California. Okay, at I was born in 1956. If you were to look at the year 1956 in the history of rock and roll, your mind would be blown. Oh, yeah. Okay. So in the year that I was born, one iconic record after another came out, right? Which gave birth to the 1960s, right? Which gave birth to iconic music that still lives today. Well, in Northern California played its own little role, right? And particularly in the Bay Area. Um, and so it wasn't, you know, it was like a stone's throw down the road, you know, to, to a two-hour drive to everything that was happening in Haight-Ashbury, everything that was happening with the Grateful oh, yeah. Dead, the Jefferson Airplane, uh, in the Oakland side, uh, the Bay Area horn bands like Cold Blood and Tower of Power, and all the jazz that was happening in the city. Um, so even though I lived in a farm town, you know, I, I had older kids who hit me to how to tune into KPFA and Berkeley yeah. <laughs> and and you know and where to buy Rolling Stone and 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 kind of get hip to what was happening in the Bay Area. So by the time before I was 21 years old, I mean I had seen and heard so many amazing artists live from you know, little known but sort of iconic Bay Area bands like Blue Cheer or Moby Grape, mm -hmm. you know, which are just like footnotes in rock history, uh, to um, Stan Getz, Quartet, Bill Evans, uh, Ray Charles, uh, Ike and Tina Turner. You know, the list just goes on. I mean, of the amount of music that I heard and saw live before I was 21 years old. Okay, so that's that's the power of place. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, if somebody were to ask me, well, how did you become a record producer? You know, it, it, there, part of it is, well, how could I not? <laughs> sure, because of the place yeah, where... Yeah, if I had that, from. if I had the other necessary ingredients, a part of my makeup, then how could I not? Right. I mean, I was living inside of a history lesson. Mm -hmm. Wendelberry has a poem called The Man Born to Farming. In your case, it would be The Man Born to Music or The Man yeah, Born to yeah, the Record man Producing. Born, born to Music. And, and also, um, you know, music for, for me was my way out of the farm towns, so mm -hmm. the irony of it, you know, because mm -hmm. I had to go back much later as an adult, you know, in my mid 40s. And, um, early 50s to, and go back there. I, I, I bought a house in Yuba City. Mm. And we had a, kept a house there for about six years. And during that time, I reacquainted myself with everything about where I grew up. Wow. So that I would have an appreciation. Because when I left there, in my mind, this is a place you leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and it was. To do what I've done in music, it was a place you leave. Sure. But what you wouldn't want to do 
um, when you have to leave a place to, to in order to fulfill your vocation, you don't want to dismiss the place mm -hmm. from which you were born and where you come and the people who your people are. So I needed to go back there and see, oh, that's why I'm like this. Mm -hmm. That's why this is important. That's where I got this. And I got it in a little farm town, you know, with a modest family of modest roots, uh, people who worked really hard. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, my generation, I was the second generation Californian. Uh, my dad was just barely born in Oroville, California. Mm -hmm. My mom was born in Durant, Oklahoma. But the rest of the family came from, you know, Singer, Louisiana, and came from Durant, Oklahoma. And they came because there was no more life for them there. Wow. They left that place. Well, since then, I've even gone back to the place in Louisiana. Oh, wow. Right, to touch that ground and to walk that ground yeah. to see, um, you know, where my uh, grandmother lived as a little girl where my great-grandfather's property was and and, um, and and just even as a matter of, um, of an homage to everyone who came before me uh, even though no one uses that property and hasn't for decades and decades and decades seven decades at least I pay the taxes on it. Oh, wow. Because it connects me to that place. Mm -hmm. So we'll always be in Nashville. We'll spend the rest of our life here in Nashville. <clears throat> but Nashville is our, our place. Mm -hmm. right? But I'll never forget growing up in Northern California and Yuba City. And now I won't forget going back to Louisiana and seeing the place where the musical part of my family came from. Uh -huh. Uh, you, you've been described as, or maybe this was even something you said about your own music, that <clears throat> it's music that's rooted in America. And you're pulling, yes. as you just said, not just from Northern California, not just from Nashville, but from Louisiana is another example that you gave right. both here and in, and in something that I, I read for you. So yeah, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I can write every kind of music that there is. Um, and so when you think of in terms of American music, uh, you know, I, I could write in an Aaron Copeland style. I could write in a, in a uh, Carl Schreiber kind of cartoon-esque, uh, hmm. you know, uh, style from the cartoons that I grew up with. In fact, there's a, a record called Ark of the Circle that I did with Jeff Coffin that you can kind of hear me playing and teasing out some of those ideas on that. Um, and then, of course, blues. Uh, blues were every kid in Northern California learned to play the blues first because we had Oakland and San Francisco, and blues were very important uh, to the Bay Area. And uh, and then, of course, rock. I mean, huge rock explosion of the '60s. Jazz. You know, I'm adept at playing jazz. Um, my grandfather sang oaky migrant songs my whole life. Mm. Uh, that's very much a part of me, like a Bob Wills kind of, 
you know, peace. Uh, um, my uncle was a huge country, didn't win, it was country and western. Uh, and I listened to a lot of Furlan Husky and, and other old timers, um, Merle Haggard, so very much a part of me. And then uh, the piece that I can't grasp, it's more like either, but it's the Louisiana piece, right? Because it's like the painting that I showed you guys of my great uncle Tommy, you know, playing a resonator guitar. And, and when I grew up, I only knew Uncle Tommy as this bent over sort of scary creature that looked like he came from the, from the Civil War, right? But every time we would visit, my Uncle Bo would give each of us chiclets gum, and then Tommy would get out his fiddle, and he, would, he was bent over, and he played in the open position, you know, like hillbillies do, right? Uh -huh. So it's not up under your chin, you know, it's just right here on your arm. Yep. You sort of saw away at it, you know, and he would play for us every time. So I was able in my childhood to, to have all of that, you know, exposed to me. My dad was trying to be sophisticated, right? So he's playing Oscar Peterson and Tony Bennett and Bill Evans and Miles Davis, right? So it's, it all blends together. And then if you look at everything that I've done, you know, it's all right there. I mean, there's nothing hidden. The clues yeah. are very obvious. Yeah, I think you know. I mean, we we were talking a little bit before we started recording about your your latest uh, your latest album, when when light flashes, help is on the way. And I think I can definitely hear lots of those things on that on that album. I mean, it's a jazz album, instrumental jazz album. Mm -hmm. um, but you've got elements of you know, there's a, there's accordion on several tracks, yeah. fiddle, um, yeah. and a lot of those things, sort of. Sort of bleeding in there. Yeah, I think, and part of that is because I'm not a genre-specific hmm. artist. Uh, and again, the place that I grew up in celebrated eclecticism, mm -hmm. and that's what I am. Wow. Yeah. You know? um, so, um, in many ways, I'm I'm shaped and formed to to not be compliant. <laughs> when you look at that, when you look at the uh, indoctrination of, of Kerouac and then the uh, celebration of eclecticism, you know, I, and then you, you can even go back to when I wrote the book about Christian music, right? Mm -hmm. And my number one thesis was is that genre is too small to hold what God's musical people mm -hmm. do. Right? Wow. It reminds me of the Mad Farmer Manifesto, where Wendell Berry says, uh, as soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, mm. lose it. Leave it as a, a, a the false trail. Yeah, leave yeah. it as the false trail, the way you didn't go. Yeah. Be yeah. like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I love that. Yeah. Well, speaking of the of the the new the the newest album you the title track is um when or not excuse me, not title track the first track is wendell berry's in the fields at night mm -hmm. um and i'm wondering if you could talk about that particular piece and why you chose to that maybe the origin of it and and yeah. how the how you chose the title yeah well. um well i often when i'm I'm titling um, instrumental music is that I'll just close my eyes and listen to it.
and uh, I'll, I'll get superficial impressions immediately. And then I'll, I'll try to see if there's something deeper than that and just kind of sit with it for a, for a bit. And then the poeticism of the title is very important to me, the, the musicality of the title. Um, so I'll, I'll spend a good bit of time <laughs> titling my instrumental that when I really came and landed on Wendell Berry in the Fields at Night, I, more than anything, just wanted people to listen to that music and say, who is Wendell Berry? <laughs> <laughs> it was a gateway. Yeah, it was a gateway drug. <laughs> yeah. I wanted them to wonder, you know. I knew that there would be, you know, people like you, you fellows who would know who it was. But if they didn't, I hope that they would be curious because I feel like Wendell is an antidote, you know? He's medicine. Mm -hmm. And uh, particularly in the time that we live now, I mean, he's never sounded more sane. And uh, so just to, to sort of give a little sign and signal in that way. And, the, and then the image of it, um, of that the farmer the one who tends place um, spends a whole day doing that work, right? And then gathers together with family and has the supper, has the dinner meal, right? And there's a moment where maybe you have to take one more look at what you did that day, mm. you know? And maybe you step out the screen door to the back of the house, or the front of the house, and you walk a bit, you know, and you you smell the way the night smells, and you um, just look over your place, and maybe you say a prayer, maybe you give thanks, but there's just that sense of of like day and night, I steward this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I think I think this this track might be the funkiest thing uh, associated with Wendell Berry. <laughs> I, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. 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 I mean, I if, if someone ever plays it for Wendell, I hope yeah. it's not offending. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he wouldn't be.
What 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 about the musical elements of that of that track might be evocative of of Wendell Berry? Um, you've got kind of that doubled melody on lots of different kinds of instruments, like the the sax, the mandolin. It sounds yeah, like an accordion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it, it's a riff. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And and um, the one thing we know about Wendell is he's easy to riff on. Hmm. Yeah, we're gonna do it for six or seven years with this podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, because you can take one idea and you and you can riff on it. Yeah, and and that's what he does in his essays. He can take this kernel of an idea and extrapolate outward from it. That's why I say, like, let's for example, let's let's say um, um, you've got a backhoe and you're scraping the topsoil off the um, in your backyard, mm-hmm. right? You scrape it all off, right? Eight inches of topsoil you scrape off, right? Because you're trying to get rid of junk and weeds and whatnot. Um, that's just a simple act, right? That a man or a woman could do thinking they're cleaning their backyard, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that act, which may might take up no more than a 100 200, 300 square feet, right? Uh, it may take decades to get that backyard to the place where it would grow things naturally in a fruitful way. Mm-hmm. All right, so Wendell can take an idea like that, right? And at the end of it, you know he's talking about a farm, you know he's talking about the inner landscape of your soul. And you know he's talking about the whole of the planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. The poem that uh, came to mind as I was listening t- to it, uh, uh, one of the times I was listening to it, was a poem that we had just talked about in a in a recent episode from the collection Openings. And he talks in there about a kingfisher whose flight can only be understood as a flight done just for the sake of pure joy yeah. and that's that came to mind as I was listening to that to that track good good just well, the joy I'm yeah I'm glad it yeah it is a joyful sound well so yeah and you work with some pretty amazing uh, collaborators on on this album can you how did that group come together have you worked with most of them previously well, why don't you gentlemen remind me of who was on there? <laughs> well, the one, the, one that, the one that stood out to me was, uh, as, as someone who uh, is an amateur bass player, uh, is, uh, is Felix Pastorius. Yes. Uh, the son yes. of, obviously the son of, uh, of Jocko. Of Jocko. The, yeah. the, since uh, James Jamerson and yeah. others, the, the most uh, innovative electric bassist in, our, in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, met, met Felix through, um, our mutual friend, Jeff Coffin, the musician and tenor saxophonist with Dave Matthews Band. And, uh, we became friends and, um, did a, a gig together and then, uh, did a recording session together in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and have spent a little bit of time together, but, um, you know, fantastic musician. I, I don't know if you've ever seen him play or not. But, I, I've, I've watched but a few he, like, videos he, of him playing. He probably has 
the biggest hands of any bass player I've ever encountered. Um, so he, he, there was a, the thought that he might play basketball huh. instead of music. Because apparently he was quite a good basketball player too. Sure. Uh, but I could see that, yeah. You know, I could see him carrying the ball down with one hand easily. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Like the first time I listened to the through the record, I uh, you know I was listening to to the bass, and because I pay a lot of attention to that, and I was like, oh, that kind of sounds like Jocko. And then you know I read up on it a little bit, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's his that's yeah. his son playing. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't, and to his credit, he doesn't just totally knock off sure, his dad. Sure. He, he definitely does some things that are unique to himself, but but in many ways, he's he's a little bit more like Marcus Miller. Hmm. Uh, so he's kind of a combination, I think, of Marcus Miller and his dad and, and his own thing. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think there was one other track on that record that uh, really stood out to us. Is, yeah, uh, and that was the, the, the final track, Gift Economy. Yes. about one of his essays, The Two Economies, mm-hmm. um, writes about sort of the tr- traditional economies of the world and what he calls the great economy, yeah. which is, uh, he says very explicitly, is for him a way of talking about the kingdom of God. Yes. Um, uh, it also reminded me of a book by Lewis Hyde called The Gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lewis Hyde talks about how artistic practices don't fit well into the traditional marketplace. Right. Um, right. And... Uh, and then it reminded me too of Wendell Berry's Sabbath poems, and so lots of things were coming up for me mm-hmm. just from the title, and then as I r- ruminated on the title as I was listening to the music. And so, yeah. you know, maybe in the you know at the risk of being redundant, can you talk about sort of the origin of that song, and then um, how you titled that? What were you thinking? Well, uh, one of the reasons why it has the word "gift" in it is because it was a song that had several incarnations mm-hmm. it was sort of a bit like the painting downstairs that we were looking at mm-hmm. um, many layers to it and then sort of sorting it out and, and the kind of the, the last thing that pulled it all together was the drummer Jordan Pearlson who played on it and then that kind of set everything right for me 
Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, I was having difficulty um, making the track work. But as soon as Jordan did his thing, then everything came kind of glued together, mm-hmm. and then I knew what to do uh, with the track. Um, because just for the listeners, uh, I mean, a lot of jazz records are recorded in two or three days where you go in and, mm-hmm. and you do three takes of each song and and then somebody sits and edits them and, and they're just kind of that pure representation of it. That's, those are not the kinds of records that I make. Mm-hmm. Um, I capture performances, right? But I still use my pop production chops, right? To dream other dreams for the source material. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I may, it may come in in one way in a performance, but I may manipulate it to send it in another direction. So I had done a lot of manipulation on that uh, song and additional composition on it. And so the fact, then once it came together, I didn't have a title yet, then I was like, ah, this is a gift. Mm. Mm. So, that, so and then, then I remembered, ah, yes, it's gift economy. Yeah, it's not transactional. There's mystery to it. It's relational. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that when I think of the, of the gift economy, I think of, of everyone living in a good and beautiful activation of their vocations, yes. giving to one another, mm-hmm. receiving from one another, um, less in a transactional sense and more in a relational sense of, of there's something good I want to give you. Mm-hmm. There's something good I want to receive. And, and I just think, you know, you can still make money and do really well and have that at the heart of mm-hmm. what you do. Mm-hmm. And I know that's what I've tried to do with my life mm-hmm. is is I I find no fault with succeeding at things <laughs> <laughs> by the world standards of success. I think it's foolish to not try to succeed at them. But um, as my friend John Foreman has quoted me saying, <laughs> people over projects yeah. there's a, a part of a Sabbath poem that I'd like to read are you familiar with Wendell Berry Sabbath poems mm-hmm. yeah. um, this one's from 1998 and this is just a, an excerpt from the sixth poem from that year he says nothing is given that is not taken and nothing taken that was not first a gift the gift is balanced by its total loss, and yet, and yet the light breaks in, heaven seizing its moments that are at once its own and yours. The day ends and is unending for the summer tanager and Vireo sing as they move among illuminated leaves. I'm just hoping maybe you could talk a bit about what, <clears throat> how you think about uh, your own artistic gifts as it relates to uh, being a person of, of faith um, and exercising those gifts uh, in your vocation as you were saying as a um, as a musician and producer um, mm-hmm. how does that how do you think about that and just in terms of the of the gifts that God has given you yeah well you know I gave you guys a little introduction in the beginning and so my early earliest teachers like Miles Davis or Jack Kerouac, um, the gift was all about self. 
it was all about bringing everything unto yourself. Kerouac had a little more community, uh, a little more tribe, um, but the gift was was always about something other than the gift. Mm-hmm. It always had an attachments, right? The attachments might be sex, they might be drugs, they might be thrills, they might be travel, some kind of, this is, I'm going to do this thing, and it's going to get me the ability to do this thing, mm-hmm. right? Which is still a transactional way of looking right. at mm. gifts. Uh, and I lived that way, you know, up until I was almost uh, 25 years old, at least. Um, and when I encountered uh, the teachings of Christ and the, the New Testament, the Bible, it was just, it turned all of that upside down for me. Mm-hmm. You, know, uh, you know, if I wanted to find my life, I was going to have to lose it. You know? <laughs> and if I wanted to be rich, I was going to have to give it all away. And, you know, everything was a paradox. And, um, and that rocked, rocked my world and real, realigned me um, back to what I know now is God's desire for humanity. It is the kingdom come and the kingdom coming to be a different kind of person in the world. They actually be one kind of person in the world and not another. And that one kind of person is, is someone who is, um, who has a compass, no matter how great their failures, they have a compass that um, seeks to love God and neighbor. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can be the biggest screw up in the world. If your compass is still pointed towards God, God and neighbor, you're going to live to tell another day. Yeah. That's how big grace is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that was how my world view shifted. That's how everything about what I did musically changed. Not the making of it. You know, I made some of my most innovative music like right at the time when I was, when I was just coming to Christ. When I was just seeking God and, and praying to the God of the Bible, which I had done for a year uh, prior to uh, actually having an encounter with Christ. I would get up every morning and night, I would pray to the God of the Bible. And then somebody came and introduced, a year later, introduced me to the God of the Bible. Um, I didn't expect, you know, I didn't expect that that um, there would be such an overnight shift, right? But I guess I had enough of that early artistic training through those early influences that I didn't just sort of flip completely away from what I knew about being an artist. But I immediately asked the questions. Like, for example, I had a very popular band and we would get 100% of the door and 10% of the bar, okay, which was unheard of. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we'd have 200 people lined out 
lined up outside to get in and and that was a good night you know as a as a young musician playing your own music so the first thing that I did I was immediately convicted that to take profanity out of of my lyrics. I had a couple of songs that uh, um, used the F word and and I, I just thought, you know what? Swearing has been uh, a, a way to hurt people. It has been a way to overemphasize something for your own um, self. Uh, glorification, uh, getting your own way. And that word, I've used that word in so many ways like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that word out of, out of my vocabulary and not, not use that and take it out of my songs. And then the other thing was, is like, I know people come to hear me to hear the music, but they come to pick each other up. They come to buy cocaine from the guy who always brings the cocaine, they, they come to get wasted, some people just come to have a good time, people are coming for all different reasons, but I don't want to profit off the bar. Mm-hmm. So I gave up the 10% of the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I risked belief in God by charging more at the door, mm-hmm. by, by saying, you know, if this is where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing right now, then we were used to getting this money, so I'm going to, on faith, charge more. So it was like that <laughs> simple of, of um, that simple of choices that I was making in the beginning. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were practical to my everyday life, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the nuance of it now you know, 35 years later, it's, it's, it's quite different. You know, I'm not praying for a parking space anymore, but (laughs) though I probably should. Yeah, uh, Nashville as it is now. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, well, um, wonder if, uh, you might update our listeners on what you're working on now. Um, Sure. Sure. Coming down the pike. Um, yeah, I, I would tell your listeners that uh, I'm busy making music and uh, they can find a lot of that new music on Instagram or on Facebook uh, because I, I'm a composer for uh, Facebook and Instagram. So you can, uh, at the bottom of your page on your mobile device, there's a music selection and you can click that and you're going to send something to somebody you want to have a little music on it you know just search there you'll see you know everybody from Bruno Mars to me and I've created a bunch of new music for Mm -hmm. that too there's a lot of jazz on there Um, so that's where you can find new music Mm -hmm. I just um, finished a new single for uh, Sarah Mason Mm -hmm. who's a fantastic artist that I signed 20 years ago um and that single will come out next week. And um, doing a lot of painting, as, as you guys saw. Yeah. Um, Andy and I, um, we, 
we remain, you know, the, the co-founders and, and founders emeritus of, of Art House. And there's three branches, and one in Dallas here in town and, and one in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, uh, and then Andy and I are about to um, reveal a new mutual blog together oh, wow. called The Writer and the Husband. Mm. So that'll be coming up um, in the next few months. Um, we're hoping by 1st of March now, I think, to have that done. And then uh, the next uh, new music release that I'll have will be a second solo piano album. Mm. Okay. So anybody who enjoyed Lemonade, you'll get Lemonade Part 2. Mm. Nice. That's great. Well, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, charliepeacock.com and uh, thewriterandthehusband.com and uh, arthouseamerica.com. Um, there's, there's probably 20 essays on there that they can, they can read at arthouseamerica.com as well as Andy's essays. Great. And then, you know, I mean, I'm on all the social media stuff. Sure. And we'll provide links for the listeners in the show notes. Yeah. And follow yeah. along with what you're doing. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, well, thank this you so was, much for taking the time. It's great. Yes. I, I love that you guys are evangelists for Wendell. And, <laughs> and I join with you. I lock arms with you in, in um, um, telling his his story, um, I think. You know, he's such a man of humility. Uh, he's like the last person that would toot his own horn. Sure. But uh, I think the three of us can agree we're happy to toot it for him. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special interview episode of The Membership. We'd like to thank our guest, Charlie Peacock, for welcoming us into his home and for agreeing to do this interview. He also graciously let us use clips from his 2018 album, When Light Flashes Help is on the Way. The excerpt from the Sabbath poem we read is from This Day, Collected and New Sabbath Poems by Wendell Berry, copyright Counterpoint Press 2014. You can find our show notes for this episode, as well as an updated reading list for future episodes, on our website at membershippod.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at membershippod. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover more great podcasts and to learn about sponsorship opportunities, go to rabbitroom.org podcasts. Finally, we'd like to ask a favor. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you head over to iTunes and leave a review or rating? We already have 48 five-star ratings, which is very encouraging. Thank you for all of your support, and thanks for listening.